So, um, if you've got a Bible on you today, why don't you um, grab it, why don't you um, turn to Matthew 13 uh, today. And uh, if you don't have one, don't worry, um, uh, the words will appear up behind me now. We're going to read just a really short passage today, and it's from Matthew 13, it's verses 44 to 46, and this is God's Word. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and he bought it. And we thank God for his word as it still speaks to us today. We kick off a brand new series today, and this series is going to take us through the next season. We're going to basically take us up to a Christmas series, and then we're going to dig back into it in the new year, okay? And we want to dwell on it for a little while because we think it's important. And the funny thing about this series is that it's essentially all about stories. And when I think about that, that's, that's quite funny, actually. It's funny because the whole intention of this next series is an opportunity to begin to speak into how we are to live. We just spent the last five weeks, if you've been with us in this last while, either in person or tuning in online, we spent the last five weeks digging through values, which really are all about speaking into who we are, right? And so the logical thing is to turn, in, is to turn next to how we are to do that, okay? If you're going to talk about who you are, then let's talk about how you become that sort of people, how you be it. And to do that, we're going to look at stories. And the reason for that is that we inhabit stories, don't we? Whenever you think about stories, we inhabit them. We live in them, okay? I have this great story, okay? It's not mine, so I feel like I can say it's great, right? But it's an incredible story, right? And uh, I've told some of you this story before. Anyway, ask me about it sometime because I'm not going to get into it today. Now, don't all of you ask me about the story after church, right? I'm not dealing it out today, okay, right? But I've got this great story, right? It's one of my favorite stories of all time, right? And it um, was so good, in fact, that members of my family kept it from me for a long time, right? Because if you think coronavirus is contagious, you want to hear me with a good story, right? I will tell anyone that sits still for long enough a good story, right? And so my family kept it from me because because it was specifically embarrassing to a member of my family, right? They wouldn't tell me because they were like, Dave will tell. He literally tell churches what has happened and he'll embarrass this person, okay? So this story, right? Uh, and the story has this one part and it has this one specific action, right? And it looks like this. I'm going to have to put the mic down, sorry. It looks like this. Right? Some of you are laughing because you know the story, right? That's the specific action, right? So it's quite, it's quite noticeable, right? If you've seen it, you kind of know the story, right? So I hear it, I crack up, I start telling everybody about the story that has this one specific action like this, right? So I, I'm telling everyone about it. And my sister found herself, my big sister finds herself at a party at one stage, okay? In someone else's house. The party is full of lots of people. She only knows a couple of them, right? And she looks around the room at one point of the evening and she sees someone on the far side of the room doing this, right? And Esther, who's actually involved in this story, right? Esther knows 
exactly what they're talking about. Like, she's like, this can only be one thing. She now knows that people who she doesn't know in a room full of people that she doesn't know are now talking about a story that directly involves her. And that's the thing about stories, right? The thing about them is that we inhabit them, don't we? The funny thing is that whenever you tell a story, all of a sudden your story becomes somebody else's, doesn't it? So something that you tell about yourself, it's probably self-deprecating, something's happened to you, you tell the story at some stage, a little while later it becomes somebody else's, oh, I know this guy, and he, this, you know, this, that, or the other happened, or there was this guy, and this happened, right? And that's how stories travel, because we inhabit them. And what's even more incredible about stories is that the second you tell one to other people, watch as they begin to tell you their story too. If it's a funny story, there's like a trumping thing that happens afterwards. Somebody says, oh, well, I know this story and this guy did. And it's like it goes from there because we inhabit stories. It's what makes someone like Billy Connolly or Peter Kay so very funny. It's because we can relate, can't we? We recognize what they're talking about. We understand and we begin to inhabit that story because we can see what they're talking about for ourselves. It relates to some part of our own lives, and that's why we find it so funny. And throughout this next series, which we've called The Kingdom of Heaven is Like, okay, the stories we're going to be exploring are Jesus' parables. We're going to take a parable or a couple of parables if there's like a logical grouping together each week, which there is this week. That's actually two parables that we've read. We're going to take a parable each week, walk through it, and begin to dig in what that parable, what that story means for our life. And interestingly, lots of them start all of the time with The Kingdom of Heaven is like. But you see, we have this problem with parables, right? And it's that we have this tendency to think of them as just simple stories, right? We almost think of them as cute, don't we? They're like Sunday school stories. Parables are like the little bit of content, that, and then Jesus will like get into the meat of the content later on whenever he's given like a more, you know, heavy duty block of teaching. We think of them as cute, but we couldn't be more wrong. The parables are the content, the thing about it is that when Jesus tells stories, they have teeth, right? The parables are the content. Now, commonly you'll hear parables defined as something like everyday stories with a spiritual meaning, right? They're kind of, that's like the commonplace idea of what they are. Because generally speaking, they portray imagery and situations that everyday people of that time could understand. And uh, it's into that context that Jesus then unveils his picture of the kingdom, right? He connects them with people in the field or with wildlife or with some aspect of life in that culture that they would get, right? And Jesus taught that way for lots of reasons. Okay. Firstly, at that stage uh, that we enter into today in the parables in Matthew's gospel, Jesus had already started to experience opposition from the religious establishment. Okay. So at the start, Jesus had done lots of stuff with the synagogue, right? He'd went to their places of worship, he'd preached there, but he'd already begun to get a huge amount of opposition. And so that opposition had driven him from the synagogue to places like the seashore, which is where Matthew 13 actually starts, right? He'd moved to the open air, to the common people, so he began to spoke their language. He wasn't, you know, there to speak kind of high religious language. He wasn't there for high-end religious debate. He was at the seashore, so he was speaking to them in terms that they could understand. 
And they enabled Jesus to hold and intrigue his listeners at a time of great opposition. He was able uh, to fascinate people without alienating them, as he still does today, doesn't he? Jesus still able to fascinate without alienating. So that's the first reason. Secondly, there was always an element of revelation in parables, okay? Whenever you read a parable, there's always more going on than just what there seems to be on the surface. In other words, they were light to those who were looking for light. What do I mean? Well, to everyone else, they were just stories about life situations, right? Just things they could read. Oh, well, that's a quirky story about a man finding treasure in a field or about a pearl um, merchant finding a pearl that was really nice, right? But to those who were looking, they were way more. You see, they weren't like how the philosophers of the time spoke. If you were a teacher of that age, a rabbi of some description, you were into like philosophy and and big ideas and concepts and things like that. Jesus didn't speak like that. He spoke in simple terms, but behind those simple terms, there was revelation. There was light for those who were looking for light. For those with the eyes of faith, parables were an instrument of revelation. Earlier on in Matthew 13, Jesus explains it himself. This is what he says in verse 10. The disciples came to him and they asked, why do you speak to the people in parables, right? He replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables, though seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not hear or understand. You see, to those of us who come to parables with the eyes of faith, there's revelation there. And thirdly, Parables push people towards making a choice. The reality is you don't understand the kingdom from the outside. If you're looking in, trying to make sense of this that Jesus is teaching and the heavy demands and the incredible things that the parables point towards from the outside, it doesn't make any sense. But if you're in, then they begin to challenge. They force us to make a decision about who we are going to be. Jesus essentially is saying every time he teaches in a parable, are you in or are you out? So that's why Jesus does it, right? And all of that is to say that as Scott McKnight wrote in his work on parables, parables are fictional stories depicting an alternative world. In other words, every time Jesus takes us into the world of one of his parables, he would say to us again and again and again, imagine a world like this. Imagine, just for a moment, just for a second, take yourself, inhabit the story, and imagine a world that looks like this. They shift our mindset. They shift our vision. And two things happen when he does it, right? We begin to inhabit the story. That's the first thing. And secondly, the story begins to inhabit us. When Jesus tells a parable and we're listening like we're really listening, we begin to inhabit the story, and the story begins to inhabit us. Don't believe me? Okay. Last time you watched a horror movie of some description, right? I'll guarantee you that afterwards you spent an awful lot longer making sure that all the doors and windows in your house were locked, right? Like the last time you watched one of those films, like Arachnophobia, right? And you feel that like the hairs in the back of your shoulders stand up and you're like, <laughs> and you're looking around and everything, right? We watched The Gift, uh, which is like a thriller that's on Amazon Prime. Other platforms, I'm sure, are also available. Anyway, we watched it during the week, right? And it's kind of creepy. It has this like stalker guy and he like keeps showing up at windows and things like that. And we finished up watching it and I was going to bed that night and I was kind of like looking out the windows, right? And the story begins to inhabit you, doesn't it? 
You begin to feel jumpy, even though you know it's just on a screen and there's not likely to be some guy standing outside your window looking in, right? But it begins to inhabit you as you begin to inhabit the story. And that's what happens in parables. We begin to dream of the life of the kingdom here and now as we step into the stories and they step into us. As we step into them, they begin to step in to us. The parables are all about the very shape of our faith. They're not just about ethics or lifestyle. Please don't view them as things that are kind of ticking us off for the way that we are or aren't living. That's not what parables are doing. They're speaking into the very shape of how we follow Jesus. Jesus is going after it all. He wants it all. And he's doing it with stories. And as we kick off today, right, We're actually jumping in, as I said, to two parables which demonstrate that the kingdom of heaven is like treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure. And that draws me to two things today that I think are at work in in these parables. And it's about worth and it's about cost, right? When we come to this parable today, we're thinking about worth and we're thinking about cost. So the parables we're reading today are both in Matthew 13, right? And chapter 13 of Matthew brings to a close the whole first half of Matthew's gospel, okay? And the thing is that this whole first half of Matthew has brought the person of Jesus right into focus, okay? With a variety of different responses to him along the way. And as we get to here, those responses are sharpening, right? They're not getting looser or, you know, more scattered. It's sharpening as it gets to here. And there are five blocks of teaching kind of broadly in Matthew, right? And this is the middle one, and it's all about response to Jesus. And it kind of neatly wraps up um, how from chapter 11 onwards, it's been digging into commitment, okay? That's kind of how you break down those, those chapters. From chapter 11, Jesus has been getting at commitment again and again and again, right? In a whole block that's been about response, this has been about commitment. And then we land in Matthew 13, and he starts talking about treasure, And with some of these weeks in the series, right, where it's logical, we're going to look at more than one, and so it is today. And that's because both of these two short parables essentially have the same message, right? I'll just read them again for you. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything that he had and bought it. You see, the first one is all about treasure, right? And let's just clear up the housekeeping bit, right? Because I realize, you know, you're all very good Christian people. So this morning, whenever you read that one, you were like, whoa, 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 hold on a minute. He found treasure in a field. He buried it again. He didn't tell the landowner and he bought the field. That's stealing, right? Some part of you is like, this guy is not a good guy, right? That's stealing. How can that possibly be a good thing, right? If you haven't thought of it, I know that I've now put that idea into your head, okay, right? But that's, you know, if you spend enough time, as I spent enough time over the last week looking at this passage, my head is like, hold on a minute. This guy is just a thief, right? He's just stolen a field that he knew had treasure in the ground. He's just bought it for X amount of money and it's worth way more because it's got a big thing treasure in the ground, right? That's stealing, except it's not, okay? Contextually, what was going on here was absolutely okay. One commentator called Blomberg, who writes uh, one of the main commentaries on the parables, he writes this, with the number of wars that ravaged Israel over the centuries, burying treasures in hopes of reclaiming them was a common enough practice, and the man discovering the treasure could have easily imagined that it did not belong to the current landowner anyway, but had been left unclaimed from decades or more in the past. It was a war-torn area of the world. 
It was common to bury treasure. It could have been buried centuries ago when some other war had passed through the area. He had no reason to believe the landowner knew about it or had any reason to think that it belonged really to him. It was a common practice. In other words, this sort of thing happened all the time. But one thing is for sure, right? That it came as a surprise to him to find it. And that's where it differs from the parable about the pearl, okay? Because it was a pearl collector who found the pearl and he had been searching. And the thing is that he had other pearls, right? That's kind of what it goes to be, a pearl collector, right? You have lots of pearls. But the thing is when he found this one, something else happened. Here's the thing. When it comes to the kingdom, We've got other pearls too, don't we? Whether we want to admit it or not, we collect them. We have other pearls in our lives. We've picked up ideologies, ethics, practices, compromises too, things that are of value to us that are not the kingdom. Some of them are good. Some of them are not so good. But the reality is we've all got other pearls in our lives. They're called careers, images, wants, lusts, fears. We collect them too, don't we? We collect them. They're working all of us. We're more like the pearl collector than we are about the man who finds the treasure in the field. But here's what's true of both parables. Both characters knew the worth of the kingdom when they found it. Both of them knew. Like treasure in a field that you were never looking for. Like perfection in your hand that you've looked for all your life. They knew it when they saw it. And it was all about worth. And in many ways, life is all about worth, isn't it? Whenever you think about the things that you give yourself to, the people that you give yourself to, the vision and the dreams that are in your heart, the things that make you tick, life is all about worth. I don't know if you've ever done that thing where you check your own net worth, have you? I can't. It doesn't work for me because all mine pulls up is David Dickinson from Bargain Hunt, right? (laughs) Like every time I, I, I try to do it numerous times, I'm like, I wonder what I'm actually worth. You know, I put it in, it's just like David Dickinson of Bargain Hunt is worth, if you're interested, two million quid, right? I mean, I thought maybe more, but anyway, he's worth two million quid, right? But I don't know if you ever run it. Now you're all on your phones about to try and run your own net worth. Great, thanks, sermon's over. Anyway, right, I don't know if you've ever done it, um, but it's meaningless anyway, isn't it? Because how can you p- possibly quantify the net worth of a life? How can you possibly quantify the net worth of your life? And yet, we wrestle in life with whether things are worth it. To the new mom or dad, will find themselves asking at some point on a sleepless night, whenever their lives are in one sense ruined, right? They will ask themselves, was it worth it? To the person starting up their own business while they stress over bills and worry that they'll ever have enough work, was it worth it? Was it worth it? To the person trying to get fit on that first lashing wet day of your training regime, right? It's all been playing sailing in the sun. You've been doing your couch to 5K. You're doing great. Or you're trying to cycle 100 miles or whatever it is. And you've been in the sun all summer. You feel great about life. And then you get that first wet day of your training regime. It's miserable outside. Your legs don't work half as well as they're meant to. Was it worth it is what you say as you begin to peel out of the driveway to the person putting themselves out there and asking that girl or boy on a date only to get knocked back. Was it worth it? Again and again and again. Life is so much about worth, isn't it? 
And the reality is that deep down we ask ourselves the same question of our relationship with Jesus and the inbreaking of the kingdom in our lives. Is it worth it? Is Jesus worth my time? Is the kingdom worth it? Is it worth it to try and hold on to this belief whenever things are hard, right? Is it worth it? You see, one of the things that Jesus does time and again with the parables is move people from the known to the unknown, right? He's trying to move them from the known to the unknown, from the fields of the marketplaces to the unknown treasure of the kingdom. I mean, he talks about treasure. doesn't tell us what it is. He just says it's treasure. And this guy sells everything he has to get the treasure that's in the field. And this grates up against so much of how our lives work, doesn't it? We want the quantifiable. We want stats. We want reviews. We want results. We want concrete, don't we? We want life to be known. We want to know that if we do this, our life will get quantifiably better, don't we? We don't want to think for one second that we might be stepping into the unknown of what life will actually be like. We want the concrete. And yet there will always be a sense of hiddenness in the kingdom. There'll always be a sense of hiddenness, no matter what we do. You see, in parables, there's no direct relation between the analogy and the thing that it signifies, right? The best way that I can think of to explain it to you this morning is like, it's like communion, right? It's like bread and wine. They're just bread and wine, aren't they? You just buy them in Tesco. There's nothing holy about it. Whoever brings them here whenever we do communion has literally just went to Tesco in the morning, got wine and bread, brought them in an oil plastic bag. And then somehow when we get here, all of a sudden something happens to them, doesn't it? Whereby we begin to see not just bread and wine bought from Tesco, no matter how good the bread or how good the wine, what we begin to see is the body and blood of Christ. And all of a sudden that which is just bread and wine becomes so much more. We don't just hear about the body and the blood of Christ. We begin to reflect in our own lives. We begin to let that hiddenness go to work on our own lives. And all it is, is just bread and wine. It's just a story about treasure found in a field. It's just a story about a pearl collector finding a pearl. And yet somewhere in the hiddenness, We're taken to that place in our lives where whether we've been just making our own way or whether we've been searching for something of worth our whole lives, we come face to face with something of real worth when we meet Jesus in his kingdom. They're just stories. But as Jesus moves us from the known to the unknown, something of real worth begins to happen in our lives. And the question today is whether it is worth your time. Because both parables demonstrate our need to see worth when we find it. They demonstrate the need to see worth, even though it could be hidden, even though we move from the known of our lives, the known of how we're planning it, the known of how we think the next 10 years are going to work out, that relationship you're in, the house that you've put an offer in for, the job you've put an application in for, or you're already in, all of the way that you have it tracked out, right? The known of your life when you begin to follow the kingdom, when you begin to take on the treasure in the field, when you begin to give up everything for that pearl of great price, you step into the unknown and the hiddenness of what might come next. In 2019, shortly after we had opened this building, I just finished preaching one Sunday and I was putting away my notes at the front like I do every week, right? 
And I looked up, right? I was kind of putting in my bag, and I looked up, and there was a young man standing in front of me, right? And he said something nice about the sermon, okay? Humble brag. And I just went into, like, the default thing that you do, which is, like, oh, you know, thanks so much. It's no problem, right? And you kind of, you get used to doing that as someone that preaches or leads worship or does stuff at the front of any environment, right? And I just, just rolled off the tongue, right? And then he said this, you don't remember me, do you? Now, to me, that's almost the worst thing that can happen because I am terrible with names, right? I'm absolutely dreadful at it, right? He says, you don't remember me. To my shame, I'm like, no, no, I don't, okay? So I apologize, right? And I do my thing where I'm like, I'm really sorry. I don't take it as a personal thing. I'm just really terrible at names, right? So I've done my thing, okay? And then he says this, right? That's okay. Don't worry. About 18 months ago, I was in a desperate situation, drink, drugs, and I'd just been arrested for a serious assault. I was going to be doing some prison time because it wasn't my first, and I called out to the Lord to save me in my prison cell uh, in a police station. I got out on bail, and my mom dragged me to your church one evening. I don't know who she was. I I don't know how she found out about us, but whatever. She brought this young man to our church one Sunday night. You preached. And people prayed for me afterwards. And Jesus heard the prayers. He heard my prayers. I gave my life to Jesus that day. And it's totally changed. This is my girlfriend. He points to a girl who was kind of sat over here somewhere. She got saved too. My life is completely different. I'm clean, no drink. I'm now a semi-pro boxer. (laughs) Pretty good. You can take that like assaulting people into boxing. right? Anyway, I'm now a semi-pro boxer. And I lead a youth group telling young people about Jesus. I just wanted to come today to say thank you. You never know what will be the fruit of your words and prayers. It's the hiddenness of the kingdom, isn't it? I didn't even know. I didn't know that he had been there that day. I didn't know that our ministry team had prayed for him. I didn't know that his life had changed. I didn't know that he'd given himself to Jesus and that Jesus had taken a hold of his life and started to move him to somewhere else new. I knew nothing of that. But that's the hiddenness of the kingdom. That's the treasure in the ground. That's the pearl of great price. And there it is, hiddenness and worth. The first thing we learn about the kingdom is that it's treasure, right? It's the pearl of great price, and it is worth it. But the second thing that we're learning today is about cost. Let's just read those short verses again. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. You see, you can't help but notice what it cost them both, can you? You can't help but notice what it cost them. Both of them, right there, in just three short verses, you've got two people and it's cost them everything. For one, he sold all he had to get the field. The other, all he had to get the pearl. And yet, while we search for things of worth, we spend so much of life resistant to cost, don't we? So much of our life, we're like, oh, cost, like effort, energy, all of that. We spend our lives resistant to the things that cost us, don't we? Joy talks sometimes about how she felt at her big sister's wedding, okay? She's sitting there listening uh, as two people made the sorts of vows that pledge yourself to one another for life, you know, and sickness and health and good times and bad, better for worse, all of those sorts of things. Joy is sat there at that stage listening to them. And uh, at that point in her life, she's just sitting there screaming inside, don't do it. Like, how can anyone? 
anyone possibly actually say that and mean it? It's not possible, right? I should say that they're two wonderful people. They love each other very much, and they have managed to fulfill those vows now. They're still happily married, have kids. We love them an awful lot, right? But there is that thing, isn't there? There is that thing as we listen to people pledge those sorts of vows, like how can you know? How do you know you can still say that when worse comes? Not just in better, but how will you know when worse comes? How can you say that sorts of thing? How can you definitely follow through with the cost? Because the cost is huge. And sometimes we enter into things in life with the naivety of the cost, right? Like signing up for that marathon leg, having never done a single run before, right? And then on your first run, as you're kind of like approximately 300 yards from your front door, you're like, this is way harder than I thought it was going to be, right? Like signing up for that, okay? There's like a naivety sometimes. And other times we just want to bolt things on to our otherwise meticulously planned life. Like we want the health drive, right? We Just to bolt around our diet of Doritos and curry, right? We want to eat clean, but we don't want to give up the stuff that's not clean. We want to have a family, but we don't want it to upset our social life. We want a relationship with Jesus, but we just don't want him to upset what we want to do with our lives. And yet the field cost everything. The pearl cost Everything. It meant that every other pearl in his collection had to go to get perfection when he found it. N.T. Wright says this, The gospel of the kingdom isn't a pleasant religious idea that you might like to explore sometime when you've got an hour or two to spare. And that's it. That's the cost. That's what it means to get the pearl of great price. That's what it means to get the treasure that's in a field. Jim Elliot once wrote this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This is Jim Elliot, who in 1956 was murdered alongside four others by the Warani Indians in Ecuador, the ones he was trying to reach. By the way, many of whom came to know Jesus later. He is no fool. He gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You see, the kingdom is given to us to receive, even though we've done nothing to deserve it. But partnering with it in our lives and in our world will cost us all that we have. All that we have. And when Jesus teaches in parables, one of the main features is that he is always trying to make us make a decision about our lives in the kingdom, right? And the thing is that some of us find ourselves not seeking the kingdom, right? It's just not on the radar for how we make decisions in our lives, right? Every day we get up, we kind of go to uni or we go to work and we're just like meandering through our lives, right? The kingdom of heaven is not entering into our mindset as we're on our way to lectures, is it? You're like just about making it in the door. Same with like if you've got kids, you're like just about getting them breakfast in the morning. Like you feel like you've done 12 rounds before you just get them out to school, okay? Or if you've got like a job and at the minute it's just really high pressure because lots of people's jobs are high pressure right now. You feel like you're just about managing to get through without in any way, like I don't want to let Jesus involved in this because he just interrupted, right? And I just about have enough energy in me just to get through the door. You see, lots of the time we say we're seeking the kingdom, but are we really? Are we really? And sometimes we're looking for it, but we aren't prepared to go where it goes. You see, sometimes we're not looking for it at all. Other times we're looking for it, but then whenever God speaks, we're just not prepared to go where it goes. 
In Matthew 2, right, it tells that story of the Advent, um, that section of the Advent story about the Magi, okay? And they arrive, and they ask Herod, where is the Messiah going to be born, okay? And at that point in time, Herod gathers together, and this is what it says, all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law to ask them where they think the Messiah is going to be born. And they say Bethlehem, right? So the Magi arrive, they've traveled a long way. These are clearly important people. They arrive, they ask King Herod, where is he going to be born? He gathers all of the religious leaders of the time. They tell him, well, it's going to be, he's going to be born here, right? They knew the prophecies. They were invested enough to know where Jesus would, would be found. And yet what happens next is that the Magi leave and they find Jesus. And not one single one of those religious leaders or elders went with them. They were invested enough to know the prophecies, invested enough to know where Jesus would be found. There when the Magi arrive and say, we're looking for the King of the Jews, we're looking for the Messiah, right? They heard all of that. And yet when the Magi go, none of them went too. When the Magi went, none of them went too. And that's us, isn't it? So often in our lives, we talk about wanting the kingdom, right? We pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that so easily that it just runs off our tongues, doesn't it? It's become like this rhythmic thing that we barely even think about, right? It just comes out. And yet we pray it. And the truth is, very often that all we want is just a little bit of the kingdom, don't we? Just enough to ma- for us to manage. We're hedging our bets, We want to hedge our bets. And the thing is, we can't, can we? We all know that when it comes to the things of real worth and significance in our lives, you can't hedge your bets, right? Like like being just a, a little bit in is being not in at all, right? With the big things in our lives, we find out that being just a little bit in is not in at all, right? Like if you want to train for the Olympics, being just a little bit in for training is not in at all. Like you won't even make it to the Olympics if you're just a little bit in. Alternatively, if you're in a relationship with somebody and, and you know, they begin to ask you, you know, you know, do you love me? And you're like, well, like 85% do. Like that's a big number, right? 85% is not in at all, right? And when it comes to the kingdom, it's exactly the same thing, right? Because when we live like that, all we do is undermine its worth. I have loads of designer friends. I don't mean like I've designed them. I mean like they're graphic designers and things like that, right? Um, loads of, I should have said loads of friends who are creatives, okay? And um, shout out, I love you all. I'm not going to get into brand names this morning because lots of them come to this church. And if I mention all of them except one, I'm going to offend them, right? So lots of designers come. That sounds so poncy, right? Um, lots of creatives come to our church, right? And just about all of them now run their own businesses, okay, and have managed to make their own way. It's something that I'm always in awe of whenever I talk to them about how they've got to here, right? Lots of them worked for other companies or whatever, and they've managed now to forge their own way and have their own business doing what it is they love to do. And I'm always in awe of that, right? But just about all of them tell me about how particularly early on in the journey of the business, um, it's just one person after another after another inquiring about their work but never wanting to pay for what it costs, like bartering, 
Like the second they say, how much would it cost to take photos for this? And they're like, well, it might cost 500 pounds. They're like, I was thinking more like seven pound 50, you know, and they get into that sort of thing. Like I want my logo designed and they're like, okay, well, a full brand. I don't know. There's some word for it, like a brand evaluation or something like that, right? It's going to cost you a thousand pounds. And they're like, what? I went to some website and it was only 99 pounds. Like how can it possibly be that expensive, right? And they barter again and again and again. And all it manages to do once they've bartered enough, once they've dodged payments, once they've made our friends who are designers go like chase them three times to eventually get paid or else find that these people won't pay at all, all it does is it undermines the worth of what they do. And when we come to Jesus and all he has done and the opportunity to receive the kingdom and be part of its inbreaking in our world and in our lives, and all we try to do is bolt it onto our lives, right? Just take a little bit. Just say, Jesus, I want the kingdom, but just enough that I can manage. When we try to just play it down, when we try to barter with Jesus and say, well, Jesus, whenever you said, you know, it cost you everything, I mean, I'm 85% of the way in. When we start to do that, we just undermine its worth. And we undermine what it truly costs for us to receive it. The kingdom costs. But the truth is, it's treasure of great worth to receive. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure. Treasure of great worth. Treasure that we didn't know what we were looking for, but we found It's like the pearl that we've looked for our whole lives as we've looked for worth and meaning in our lives. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like the pearl of great cost. Just as we wrap up today and we, uh, Hannah gets up and she sings, just as we take a few moments to respond. I guess as we kind of get into this series, I just wanted to say um, one thing about today and, and about all of these as we make our way through. We'll have lots of people teaching on this series as, they, as we come through it. And um, I guess the question is always, how do we respond, right? I mean, I've just told you this morning that God's word is telling us that the kingdom of heaven, right? Living in the kingdom of heaven, living in the way of Jesus, right? is all about worth and is all about cost. And how do we respond to that, right? How do we respond every week as we come to talk about humility and prayer and neighbors and all sorts of other things that, as we move along, right? Well, I just want to suggest two things each week. And the two things are this. When we come to the parables, Jesus is really calling out of us understanding and action, right? Every week, we're going to try and make sure that we, as a people, understand what Jesus is trying to say. But then the second part, the action bit, that's on you. And that's on me. Actually, if we want this to be at work in our lives, we need to understand and we need to take action. Parables are meant to stir us to see with different eyes and imagine a world like this. Where there's treasure for weary hearts and broken spirits, for lonely and fearful people, for wealthy and poor, for those who are looking for it and for those who are walking away. Where it's worth the cost. And maybe right now in your life you're like, like following Jesus through this is hard. Is it worth it? And we give it gladly. That's what both people did. It says they give it over with joy and for joy sold all they had. You know, we've noticed recently that Elle does this thing, right? Elle's at this kind of wicked stage in her life. 
um, where uh, she's got this cracker imagination, right? And um, any of you that have been around our house and spent any time with Elle will know that like she is, she, she can tell stories for days. At the minute, it's volcanoes, right? So if you see her after church, ask her about volcanoes. She'll tell you about Mount St. Helens. She'll tell you about Krakatoa. I mean, how does she even say Krakatoa, right? She'll tell you about just all manner of things relating to volcanoes, right? And she's got this great imagination and, and she's at this lovely stage where she's full tilt at imaginary play, right? So if you leave her in a room alone for enough time, she'll start to pick things up and, and she begins to go into her own little world with whatever it is she has in her hands, right? And so every movie or book that she has read or seen is swiftly turned into a game, right? With Elle playing out very often the movie that she's just watched. And yet we've noticed this thing, right? That no matter what the movie is, no matter what game it is she's playing, dinosaurs, octonauts, Aladdin, volcanoes, whatever it is, right? When you ask her who she is, she is only ever her. Like she could be playing out Aladdin, right? And she's like, Jafar, da 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 and doing all this. And then whenever you're like, who are you, Elle? Are you Jasmine? She's like, no, I'm Elle. And she's almost like offended that you suggest that she is anyone else, even in her dreams, even in her imagination. She can only be her. She can only be L. And you know what? When we come to parables, that's exactly what we need to do. We can only be us living in the world of the story. Like when you read of that man finding treasure in the field, that's you. It's not some obscure man in the Middle East. It's you. When you read of the pearl collector, he gives down every other pearl, every other thing that's meant something to him in his life the things he's been collecting all his life. He's educated himself for. He knows pearls when he finds them and he knows perfection when he finds it. You put yourself in that shoes. That's you. With everything you've collected all your life, your experiences, your wisdom, your education, the stuff that's been good and bad, the stuff that you're holding really, really tightly, right? And I don't know what that is today, whether that's a career, you're holding out for a relationship, you're holding out for that house that you really wanted to get, whatever it is. It's you this morning that puts all those things down to embrace the hiddenness, the unknown of the kingdom. You can only be you in the parables this week and every week. It's you. So don't abstract them to something that you're like, oh, that's a nice idea, right? But like connect them with my life? Nah. You can only be you in the world of parables, in the world of your imagination, about where your life is and about where your life goes. You can only be you. And I just, my prayer throughout all of this series is as we try to embrace what the kingdom of heaven is like, not just for in Belfast as it is in heaven, but for Lucy as she is in heaven, for Peter as he is in heaven, for Luke as he is in heaven, for Jamie as he is in heaven, for Matt as he is in heaven. You can only be you. And all we get to do is to try to understand and then to try and act it out in our lives. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure. It's like something of great worth. The kingdom of heaven will cost. It cost Jesus. It cost God all he had in his son. It cost Jesus his life. And it will cost us if we want to embrace it for our lives.